It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You're listening to C103's Cork Today podcast. Phone and text lines are currently closed. As we welcome you along to the programme, the subject of immigration and the subject of asylum seekers and refugees, never far from uh, people's lips of uh, late. And even yesterday, the Irish Times had uh, an Ipsos uh, survey uh, showing that uh, a larger proportion of people now feel in this country we're getting to the stage where too many immigrants and too many asylum seekers have come in to uh, this country. And of course, a lot of it has got to do with when the asylum seekers arrive in this country, trying to get them processed quickly uh, enough. So I think some people will be pleased to hear that the government has now announced they're going to fast track the decision making process around asylum claims and this is part of a crackdown on migrants who are using the system as a backdoor to economic migration. I think everyone accepts if somebody is fleeing war or fleeing persecution in danger for their lives then they deserve to come here, seek refuge and to be looked after. But unfortunately we're getting too many people who are coming here. You can understand why they're doing it. They're leaving very poor countries and they see us as a very wealthy country country. They see us as a country where there's lots of jobs and uh, lots of opportunities. So they come here as economic uh, migrants. So what's happening now is from tomorrow, the numbers of countries which the Irish government have deemed safe is going to be expanded. There's two more to be added to the list, Algeria and Botswana. So that means migrants who come from either of those countries will have their cases decided on within 90 days and restrictions will also be put on refugees who've already been granted status in another EU country. Those granted refugee status elsewhere will be put into what's called an admissibility procedure which is also going to be fast tracked because again there has been evidence that people flee uh, their country of origin, they go into another country, they're granted refugee status and then for whatever reason they see Ireland as a better country to live in so they come here and and again go through the asylum process so that's going to be um, some way stopped now uh, as well and then unless it's appealed, it'll have to be appealed to the International Protection Appeals Tribunal or if the appeal is unsuccessful, the application for asylum will then be closed and the migrants will be forced to uh, leave. And both of those changes, they're, they're moving swift on this. They're going to kick in from tomorrow. Now, the Justice Minister, Helen McEntee, will be bringing the memo to the Cabinet today outlining the plans and this is her plan to drive down the rate of asylum applications who have been seeking accommodation from the state. The addition of Algeria, now that's 
country is particularly uh, significant uh, as the country and the government are trying to tackle the rising levels of migration into this country because the latest figures from the Department of Integration show that if you look at just the country of Algeria alone and it is now going to be deemed a safe uh, country we are currently accommodating 3,110 people from Algeria and for Botswana the 709 people being uh, accommodated. Countries are classified as safe when there's generally no persecution there. There's no torture, no degrading behaviour or treatment. There's no punishment. There's no threat of indiscriminate violence in situations of international or internal armed conflict. At present, we have a number of countries which are deemed safe. Already to date, they include people coming from Albania, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Georgia, Kosovo, Macedonia, Montenegro, Serbia and South Africa. And now two more to be added to that, Albania Algeria and Botswana and asylum seeker presenting from a safe country they have their they they already have their application fast tracked but they're even going to speed that up what's going to happen is they will receive their interview date on the day that they apply for international protection and most people apply as soon as they arrive in this country and then it's expected that that interview will happen in just a matter of weeks and applications for asylum from the list of safe countries has already decreased. They're down by 38% since November of 2022 with the first instance refusals running at 81% and then an average of 78 of those when they are appealed also have their appeals rejected which means they then have to leave the country and the Minister uh, now believes that expanding this level of swift and clear decision making will lead to further decreases in in efforts to use the asylum system as a backdoor to economic migration and I think because word will get out if the government get tough on people who are here illegally and they're only here to claim economic migration. Uh, If they can crack down on that and do it quickly, the word will get out because the people who come to this country, it costs them a lot of money. In many cases, they have to pay huge sums of money to people smugglers to get them into Ireland. And of course, you know, they're sold on this dream. Oh, it'll be all fine and you'll be able to get a job and you'll be able to find housing and everything will be OK and nothing could be further from the truth. So I think if the message start go, starts going out to these, particularly these safe countries where people don't need to be fleeing other than they don't have a good quality of uh, life. I think if the message gets out, we will continue to see a further deterioration of the number of people who uh, present here. Because what's always been a problem with our asylum system, if you go back to direct provision, uh, for example, uh, was that the system took too long. We had people who were in direct provision centres for years and years and years waiting for their assessment, waiting for if they they went on to appeal, waiting for the appeals to go through. And it literally just went on for for too long. So I think this is a good move by the government and let's see if they can push it through and make sure that all those cases are decided within uh, 90 days because it certainly will lessen the amount of people trying to come to our country. I mentioned the two countries that are now going to be added to safe countries by the government, Algeria and Botswana. That's prompted a texture to say Algeria and Botswana. Uh, why were those countries not deemed safe? Why are they only being deemed 
unsafe, are safe today. Why were they not included on the list a week or a year ago? It's a total scam. Call it for what it is. Well, I suppose in Algeria, they have had unrest. There was riots in Algeria that were there from 2019 until uh, 2021. So there was a lot of conflict and potential drivers of conflict. There was Islamic terrorist groups. Uh, so there has been trouble there in the past. I don't know much about Botswana. So I, I can't say if there was or wasn't conflict there in the past. But anyway, they, as and from tomorrow, are added to the list of safe countries. We already have a list of safe countries, but two more are due to be added to it. And, you know, in the hope that it will stop people trying to use the asylum system as a backdoor to economic migration. I think the government are very aware of what a number of people are doing and that's the reason for it. 0818103103. A text that came in yesterday, my apologies, it came in at the close of the programme and I wasn't able to get to it, but I think it's a word of warning for some people. And this is to do with a text message that you may receive from your bank. And of course... The minute we receive text messages from, from from a bank, we straight away think, even if it comes from what is the bank that you bank with, you straight away think, oh, that's a scam and you ignore it. And that's what happened to this listener who says they got a text from AIB, which said, <coughs> said we've placed a hold on your card. Is transaction for €1.85 at Google, YouTube and card ending 3560 yours? If so, reply one. If not, reply nine. Now, the listener says, this was sent to me last Saturday morning four times. So I thought it was just a scam as the bank have never texted me in the past. So didn't do anything about it. But then I went downtown a few hours later and I presented my card to do some shopping only to be told my, my, my card was declined. So I immediately rang the customer service number on the back of my card and lo and behold, I spoke to a customer service personnel who said my card was being used in America. So they can my card when they didn't hear from me. Now, I don't do any online banking. I don't buy anything online. I only use my card for shopping. Just to warn people, please don't call out my name or identify me in any way. Now, I remember a number of years ago, it's got to be 10 years plus, waking up on a Saturday morning to similar texts from my bank telling me that there had been uh, two transactions in the States and was I in America? And like that, you had to reply, you had to press a number, you know, on your keypad, either like that, one for no uh, or nine uh, for yes. But what I did, because we're all so nervous about these text messages, I got a number for the bank and I rang the bank and they told me that there was fraudulent transactions. Somebody had parked a car in New York and used my card in the the machine, they'd gone off that and they bought a cup of coffee and then somewhere else in the States my card had popped up. There was three very, very small items on it. I think they didn't come to any more than about $10 in total but that's what the scammers always do to make sure that they can genuinely use uh, this card. So I immediately said no that's not me. Then I had the whole the inconvenience the card was cancelled. Now I was lucky that it was only a credit card it wasn't my debit card so it wasn't that inconvenient uh, for me and I did get the money back that, that was taken from the credit card after quite some time but I, but yeah, I did get the money back. Um, but it does leave you scratching your head as to what to do when you get a text message. The only thing I can say is that any of the scam messages will always ask you to click on a link. Whereas when it's a genuine text message from your bank, they'll never ask you to click on a link. They'll more than likely do it do it the way that was put in that particular text where you're just pressing a button on your phone. But 
my advice is is to do what I did all those years ago. If you get one of those texts and you think that it could be genuine as opposed to being a scam, is to get a number for the bank, either like that, the number on the back of your card is, is a good one to use and get through to the bank. Because even if it is a scam text, the bank will straight away be able to tell you. But it's really inconvenient to go out and do some shopping if it's your debit card and it's the only card that you use. And so many people now, as how often have we spoken about this, do everything on their card and actually don't have cash. And you could find yourself in a right pickle if your card is being cancelled because it's going to take a few days for a new card to be sent out to you. So please be aware and be careful of that. And also from yesterday we had the wonderful Magella Beatty who spoke to us yesterday from Care Champions. They're a wonderful organisation and they've been particularly very helpful and supportive of uh, family members who lost loved ones in hospitals and in nursing homes during the COVID-19 pandemic. And Magella spoke to us yesterday because as an organisation that's trying to help those uh, families get over what happened to their loved ones during the pandemic. They're not very happy about the COVID inquiry. Now, we don't have the full terms of reference for the COVID inquiry yet, but what they're hearing from so far, they're not happy with it and and feel nobody's going to be held accountable. And that's so important to family members. Well, that prompted a listener to say, I was listening to Magella Beatty yesterday morning on your programme. I still mourn the loss of my adored mom, Alice, who died alone in a Cork hospital three years ago today and we still have no closure and absolutely nothing has changed. We need a human rights led public inquiry with a truth telling process. So our horrendous stories need to be told to prevent it happening to others in the future. RIP mom, isn't that just heartbreaking? So we think of Alice today, may her gentle soul uh, rest in peace, but also for Alice's family who mourn their beloved uh, mother and, you know, and it's the fact of the way that she died and the fact that she died alone. None of us wants to think of a much loved mother, father, grandmother, husband, wife, son, daughter. Nobody wants to think of them dying alone. It really is heartbreaking. My heart goes out to that listener. The junior minister for retail business, uh, Niall Richmond, is examining ways that could help families to buy expensive baby formula as many parents are struggling to afford price hikes. Labour Senator Rebecca Moynihan has actually written to the Competition and Consumer Protection Commission calling for an investigation into the baby formula market and I'm delighted to say Rebecca takes time out to talk to us this morning. Good morning to you Rebecca. Good morning, how are you? I'm very well. Now I have to say it's been a long time since I needed to buy baby uh, formula. I think people will be shocked. It really has increased in price. Massively. Um, So what we see is the consumer price index for baby food, which is a bit more general than just baby formula, is running at 7% last year, which is ahead of other groceries. But you see in the area of formula, um, in some instances between like 2021 and now it being up between 20 and 30%. So massive, massive increases in baby formula. And we don't really know the extent of the increase and we don't really know why it has increased as much it has. So we have the consumer and um, the Competition Consumer Protection Authority in Ireland, but there's a Competition um, Markets Authority in the UK, and they had a look into this. Um, and what they found was that the cost base of formula companies didn't increase at the same rate that formula was increasing, and it was 25% of the UK. So they've commenced an investigation to have a look at exactly why and what's happening in the formula market in the UK. And I imagine something very similar is happening here. And it's not like parents, Rebecca, have choice here. When a baby needs formula, a baby needs formula. Uh, uh, Absolutely. 
Um, and what you, you will tend to find is that um, people on lower incomes will be spending a much bigger proportion um, of their income on purchasing things like baby formula. It's also one of these things that's not price sensitive at all. Um, so, the, you know, it, as formula increases, um, people will tend to still buy the formula that they're loyal to. Um, that's one of the things that they found in the UK as well. People didn't switch to generics when there were some supermarket-owned brands that were there, um, which I think is very concerning. Um, and we find that it's not price sensitive. So I think formula companies know they can increase prices and nobody will say anything or nobody will even really notice about it. So it's hugely concerning. You hear reports about parents doing things like like watering down formula more. And of course, formula is not just about volume, it's about nutrition. Um, and that's one of the key things. So that's a public health issue. And I really think the regulatory authorities need to be taking this, what is a public health issue, very, very seriously. Um, one of the Sinn Féin TDs, Louise O'Reilly, put in um, a PQ and it back in um, May. And uh, the minister just came back with... Um, a couple of paragraphs on how they wanted to support breastfeeding and they were hiring additional lactation consultants, which I think was such an insulting answer that's, to parents that's who are just, really squeezed. Yeah, and, really and, and as well, and as well, you know, like we all know breast is best and that message has been out there. But for some women, breastfeeding just isn't an option. Everybody makes their own choices and they yeah. have the right... They have both the right to be advocated for um, and also every baby has the right to be fed um, nutritious food that meets their needs without having to be worrying about the cost of it. And uniquely, like for example in the UK, uh, there's a system where you get um, vouchers for formula um, for people who on low incomes who are struggling to meet um, the cost of formula. We don't have anything like that um, in Ireland. So we really need to have a look at this whole area and see how we can best support parents to meet the nutritional needs um, of their children and um, no matter which way they decide to feed their child. And is it the case that supermarket vouchers can't be used to buy baby formula? I was unaware of that. Yeah, so it's due to um, an EU regulation which is kind of adopted and flowed down from the World Health Organization code which was adopted um, in 1981 um, and it essentially says that there can be no endless point sales promotion. And I do understand that when it comes to individual formula in terms of trying to engineer brand loyalty to a particular formula. But I think you have very, you know, aggressive and predatory formula companies. But but, but I think when you categorize them um, in, in, in the same category of health and alcohol in terms of infant formula being, a, you know, a, a public health issues the way alcohol and cigarettes are, I think it's very, very stigmatising for people. Um, and you're talking about applying it to individual supermarket vouchers. So people are already in those supermarkets to be able to deal with it. And I think that's something, even from just how stigmatising it is to be in that same category, um, I think it's very unfair to parents um, who feed their children before for, with, with, with formula. Um, and at a, at a very minimum, I think that's something that should be changed. But I actually think what we need to do is we need to be providing low-cost generic formula. Of course, the private sector step in when the public sector aren't, aren't doing it, and this should be seen as something you know akin to generic drugs, drugs available on the drugs payment scheme, and um, that it is essential for public health that babies get the nutrition that they need. Okay, some uh, listeners getting in on this. Uh, Kim says, uh, I was so delighted when uh, my, my youngest child, my baby, came off formula last year. It was a huge drain on our family resources. And Barbara says, well, bon- well done to Rebecca for raising this issue. She has friends who have diluted formula to make it last longer, which is what you're talking about and there could be health in- implications there. 
yeah, absolutely. And that's why I think the regulatory authorities need not to ignore this and not to fob people off and actually take real action at the cost of formula because so many parents are struggling um, and we don't want to see cases like that. And I think there also needs to be public information campaigns um, around the whole issue of, you know, the, the dangers of diluting formula because you're actually diluting the nutrition available for babies, even though it might seem like a, a bigger volume. Formula across the board is very, very heavily regulated. There's very little difference between um, the brands. There's very little difference between the ones that say that they add prebiotics, etc., etc. It's specifically formulated for a growing baby's need. Um, and because it is so tightly regulated, they're pretty much all the same. Um, but the, the volume guidelines are important for a growing child. Yeah, and of course, parents want to give the very best to their children. And I think, I think Linda makes a good point. She says, why do brands spend so much money on advertising, is it really necessary? Parents have a tendency to stick with a brand that suits their baby. It is, and I think Linda's right, you don't jump from one brand to the other just because you've seen a, an expensive ad on the TV. Well, the thing is that brands for infant formula can't advertise, and I think that's a really good thing as part of the, the, the WHO code. So we tend not to have as aggressive advertising. I have to say, I, I have an 11-month-old. I um, breastfed, um, and I then combination fed, and now I formula feed. I didn't notice like very like huge volumes of, of advertising and formula companies at me now other people might say different but I definitely know that from my own experience that's not something maybe I had tuned it out at the time <laughs> um but but like we went for the for, for, for I'm in a lucky position that we're able to afford those pre-made they're they're much more expensive than otherwise but because it was kind of once we had begun the weaning journey um we don't have that volume of advertising when it comes to formula companies but but I also do think that they're all pretty much the same yeah, and that's yeah. why that's why actually the government using their leverage through Enterprise Ireland we have um six of the formula brands worldwide which are based here we're a net exporter of formula that we actually probably need to be moving to a system where there's generic formula that's provided for people um, through that system and I think even things like packaging we need to just work around. Yeah and Cathy is making the point all of my uh, three three children were, were formula fed. The formula that I selected was the one that the hospital gave me and if you come out of a hospital on a formula that suits your baby you're not going to change. Yeah, I, I, and I think that, like, I, I think that that definitely happens. Now, they're not, like, when the hospitals throw them out at you, they're not meant to give information about formula. They're not meant to have any preferential brands. That definitely slips in there. But as I say, like, I think kind of generic formula with a public information campaign to say that actually most formulas are exactly the same mm. with no added extras. Yeah. You know, it, one isn't better for your baby and... Um, you know, it, they pretty much all do the same thing, but it's important not to dilute them. I think it's very much needed in that yeah. case because there is no difference between them. Okay, and Mary says, just a comment on your discussion on baby formula. I read an article online where a shop assistant was interviewed and the shop assistant said that baby formula was the most popular item that was being stolen from supermarkets at the moment and as you guessed Senator Rebecca Moynihan uh, said in that interview it said parents are reducing the number of scoops recommended for the age of the baby it is so uh, worrying Yeah, I, I, I saw that online it, it's, it's one of the most shoplifted item and to me that was heartbreaking to think that parents and let's be honest it's probably mums going to that level so desperate to get the baby formula Absolutely 
absolutely. It's it's heartbreaking. I was in Ballyfermot and Tesco the other day, and every single um, formula in there was security tagged. Oh, it's really, no. really. It, oh. it, it, it's really, really heartbreaking to know that people are doing that. I've seen some horrific comments online as well, being like people are selling them on for a particular reason. The, the, the fact of the matter is, uh, formula is an essential part of infant nutrition for so many parents. And it is essential that we have it on a low-cost basis. We can't ignore it. We have it on a low-cost basis and a generic basis. And it's really, really sad to see just the, the pure worry across uh, across the board from parents on the ability to afford it. And I, I really don't think the whole discussion around the cost of living crisis, this wasn't raised, hasn't been raised um as much until now and everybody's talking about the cost of energy and the cost of groceries but actually the cost of a very essential thing to our younger kids to give them the best start in life I think it's outrageous that it yeah. hadn't been You're, you're right, you're right and that's why I can see so many uh, and I'm assuming young mums saying well done to Senator Rebecca Moynihan for raising this it's an issue that has never been uh, addressed uh, Listen Rebecca we leave it there thank you for that and thanks for joining thank us on the programme and uh, we'll await with great interest to see what the Competition and Consumer Protection Commission have to say after uh, Rebecca has uh, written uh, to them because she's right in the UK an investigation by their consumer watchdog it actually results in some formula cutting their price by 7%. So could we see something similar happening here? Almost half of the 24,000 people waiting for audiology treatment in Ireland are children under the age of 17 with the Cork-Kerry region having the highest number of all ages. The HSC released the waiting list data on audiology to Cork East. Uh, Dáil Deputy Sean Sherlock who joins me this morning. Good morning to you Sean. Good morning, Patricia. Yes, another lengthy uh, waiting list. Do we have, or do you have any indications as to why this area, Cork and Kerry, has the highest waiting list for audiology? It, 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 we're trying to find that out. We don't know the answer to that question because it's very strange in terms of how they calculate these figures. What they've done is they have centralised all of the figures into what they call the South Lee, which is a portion of the HSE administrative area uh, in Cork. But if you if you take the overall picture that there are 24,000 people nationally waiting and then in the Cork and Kerry region, then there's about 5,870 people waiting. You know, that's over a quarter of the people in the Cork Kerry region who are on a list for audiology services. And what that means is they may be waiting for hearing aids or for further tests or for treatments or even surgery. And all of those figures locally within what they call CHO4, which is the administrative area that covers the Cork and Kerry region, all of the figures then are, are, are centralised then into a subset of that, which is South Lee. So I don't know how many people in Mallow, for instance, or even Tralee or Clannacilty or Cove or Yall or any of these places are actually, we don't have a breakdown. Whereas if you were looking at uh, ophthalmology or dietetics, we'd have an exact breakdown of who is waiting and where they're waiting. And it's just uh, really frustrating because in my experience, the waiting lists seem to be growing. And the the upshot of all of this is that there are people who I'm advocating for who need a, uh, access to these services. And like particularly young people who are not getting the services because the waiting lists are growing it seems to me to be week by week and they're yeah. getting worse under this government and than they were when we were in government. And, and, you know, that's and what when, I can't understand. And when I was reading into this yesterday, you know, it struck me because when it comes to children, um, hearing loss can have such a huge impact on their education. 
and, and this is the point. And like, like as, as a parent myself, and I always tend to look at this through the prism of, you know, you, you know, your understanding of the needs of children based on your own experience. But teaching and learning, you know, is the most vital teaching, learning, nutrition. And for a child to be able to access services so that they can be taught, so that they can learn and be dealt with in an equal way to their peers is absolutely vital. So if I've got a five-year-old, you know, who I'm advocating for, or a six-year-old or a seven-year-old who can't get hearing aids, who needs access to further tests, who needs a treatment or possibly needs uh, surgery, then the state is failing that young person and putting that young person to, to your question behind his or her peers. So that's that's really the upshot of it. And that's why it's really frustrating. I mean, why is it that there are in the Cork and Kerry region, there are about 5,870 people waiting for access to audiology services? So in asking the question, you get back the data. And if the data is not accurately corrected or, or subpar in terms of how it's disseminated, what it puts me at is a disadvantage as a TD because I want to know, you know, should we have more audiolo audiologists in Cork? Do we need more specialists in 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 Northley, in Southley, in North Cork? Yeah, what Where are the areas the with the biggest? Yeah, yeah. And can and do some parents go private, Sean, if they can afford it? If they can afford it. But what I've noticed in latter years is because of this cost of living crisis now, the sacrifices that people, working parents have to make to get access to services for their children, you know, it's just too much to bear when we should be living at a time when there are massive amounts of resources deployed elsewhere. But it's the prioritisation of those resources seems to be poor, in my opinion. And if there is a public health system there, the public health system is supposed to deliver. Now, I, I keep making the argument to the HSE, to the minister, that if in another CHO up the country, like a Galway region or Northwest or Dublin, you know, if there is capacity there for people uh, where for people from Cork and Kerry to access those services, then why shouldn't they be able to access those services? Because in my experience, if you have to bring your child from Cork to Dublin to get access to audiology services, that's a train ride away. You know, I mean, people will do it if they know that they've access. I, I've, I've, of course you will. And, but, but the the route, of, if people do decide to go private, anybody who's ever purchased hearing aids, they are really expensive. They're not, whereas if, if you're going through the public system and your child needs hearing aids, they'll be allocated hearing aids. But if you're going to go private, that's a lot of money for parents to have to come up with. Well, well it's it's a product of this dual system that we have, the public-private system. Whereas if you have health insurance and you have the means to go private, you can go private. And you can probably procure the service of arguably the same person privately who will be providing the service publicly, but through a waiting list. And that's the the anomaly that exists within the system. But that's the system that we have. So what I want to see, though, is that five year old, that 17 year old, you know, of which there are within that cohort 1200 people in the Cork Kerry region being able to get access to the service so that that person is learning so that their experience in life so that they are treated with uh, you know, 
a, a level of equality that they deserve. And that if the public system can provide that, then the HSC needs to be recruiting or procuring the services from people to get access, okay. but not paying and, at private rates. And then at the other end of the age demographic graphic, you've got the older person uh, with hearing issues. And, and so and they can become socially withdrawn if they can't hear what's going on. I mean, only yesterday I had the wonderful uh, Kevin Quaid who lives with Louis Body Dementia uh, in studio uh, with us and he was talking about, he noticed there was a hearing, he, he had a hearing loss now, it's linked to his Louis Body, but he said the difference that the hearing aids have made because he found himself, he just wasn't going places because he realised he didn't want to keep saying to somebody, sorry, I can't hear you, sorry, can you say that again? And he was socially withdrawing and that can happen to older people if they have a hearing loss and they're on one of these waiting lists? Well, the, the, the very nature of, of humanity and, you know, and particularly for Irish people is the ability to communicate, to listen, to hear. And everyday conversation is vital to sustain us, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and we're social animals, the Irish people. So if you are not able to communicate, if you're not able to hear and you become withdrawn, that has all sorts of, as we know, you know, consequences for a person's psychological well-being and the psychosocial well-being that goes with that. So that's why I treat this issue as a vital issue, because if people can have access to audiology services from cradle, you know, to, to, to old age, uh, and if those service, if the means are there to provide the service, of which there are, the means are there, it's a case then of the HSE, of government, uh, prioritising it. Now, I'm going to say this as well, Patricia. There is a government TD in the constituency of Cork East who is the youngest person in the doll. I would hope that that young person would take up the cudgel on behalf of young people and access to services such as I'm talking about here and become an advocate for young people in a real sense and an advocate for people who need within his own constituency, uh, you know, access to the services because he's a government TD. You know, he has the ear of the minister. You know, that's the type of energy that you would hope if he can give it some kind of energy and if we can all work in a non-political or non-partisan way around this to then, reduce you know, these I lists, the services yeah. because be I, because I know I know Chime they're the charity for for deaf and hard of hearing they highlighted a case of an 82 year old an 82 year old woman who was put on a two year waiting list for audiology but she had been removed from a list that she was on for 3 years and then put on another waiting list for two at 82 would she even be alive when she gets called well, I, I could write a thesis on on the number of examples of people who get shifted from this list to that list because there's a certain amount of massaging of figures. Now, the one thing I will say about the HSE is that they're very good at supplying figures to, to D, TDs like myself. But what they're not very good at is deploying the resource in the most effective way so that that person can get access to the service within her community or as near to her community as makes no difference. And, and that's the key. That's the kernel of all of this as far as I'm concerned. If I get accurate figures on the breakdowns uh, across the towns, uh, you know, in CHO4, the Community Health Organisation 4, which is governed by the HSE, then I can start targeting, you know, which towns 
where is there a service gap and which towns are, are are affected, adversely affected by this, then you can start chasing the HSE then and saying, well, why don't we have an audiologist here? Why don't we have a specialist there? And that's really the purpose of highlighting these figures, because it's not it's unconscionable that an 82 year old would be waiting that long, gets shifted onto another list and, and gets caught up in a bureaucratic cask type scenario where she's further and further away from the services that actually she's entitled to. Because and it's just her quality her of life. It's just her quality of life and everything, Sean, you'd have to That's think of. And then another listener said, I'm listening with great interest to Sean Sherlock talking about the audiology waiting list. I have been diagnosed with neuropathy. I'm waiting for an appointment. No, no news on when I'm even going to get that appointment. It's terrible. I get the feeling no one cares just because I'm 75. That's kind of heartbreaking. Well, Patricia, if if that lady or that person wants to contact my office, I don't care where that person is. If that person phones my office, I'll take up the cudgel. I'll do my best for that person. I'll see what we can try at least maybe investigate what the circumstances are there and I'd be happy to follow up okay. on that. Well done. All right. Okay, we leave okay. it there. Uh, Sean, thank you for that and uh, thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, 0818103103. I just saw Michael uh, O'Sullivan, who is a great advocate for older people uh, in West Cork, saying that uh, Katie Hannan last night, that's um, up front, isn't it? She, he said he did a very interesting programme on older people. It's well worth uh, the watch. I'll, I'll download it and watch it on, on the player. Katie Hannan's programme is excellent, but unfortunately it's just always on too late I talk about it being on on a school night and uh, I'm never I'm never able to stay up that late uh, for it on the waiting list that we spoke about today it's audiology featured when we were speaking uh, just a couple of minutes ago with uh, Sean Sherlock uh, so this sister says Patricia it's the government they're all wrong we are losing too many of our healthcare professionals like the audiologists we just simply don't have enough doctors and nurses and other healthcare professionals would not be going away if they were given a proper way the government needs to build more uh, hospitals. And uh, Angela actually sent in commentary, just didn't get to it, on a very similar uh, vein. It's not just that there are waiting lists to access consultants. There's also huge issues in trying to access GPs and South Stock. Our population has grown so much over the past number of years and there was no plans put in place by our government to cope with that extra workload. So also, they are not making it attractive to any healthcare professional to stay in Ireland once they're qualified. These healthcare professionals, the likes of our doctors and nurses, have to work every hour that God's, God sends. And then guess what? We tax them to the hilt. In other countries, you have your fair share of work, but you've got plenty of time off. There's a good work-life balance and taxes in other countries are not as high as they are here. If I were a healthcare professional, I know what I would do. I would be emigrating also. Kind regards. And that came in from Angela, who has a huge understanding as to why we are losing so many of our young healthcare uh, professionals and I don't know what the figures are we've always we've always had um, a thing where people train they get their qualifications and they go abroad for a little bit of experience. That's been going on for, for many, many years. But I don't know if we are hemorrhaging and if we are losing more of those healthcare professionals because exactly what Angela says, their work environment can be very, very stressful. You speak to any doctor or nurse or anyone on a multidisciplinary team and they will tell you just how stressed they are at work. And if they get offered a much better work-life balance on better pay, 
in a country where they can afford housing, you can understand, as Angela says, why so many healthcare professionals decide to emigrate. George, uh, commenting on our chat in the last hour about baby formula and just how expensive baby formula has uh, gone up, uh, particularly in the last few years with everything rising. But the baby formula has gone up even more than, say, other food items. And, you know, and I was making the point, if you've got a baby who needs baby formula, you don't have a lot of choice when baby wants bottle, baby wants bottle. George thinks very unfair listening to uh, Senator Rebecca Moynihan uh, speak about the fact that baby formula is included like alcohol and cigarettes when it comes to supermarket vouchers. Uh, He says it seems very bizarre to George why you would batch in baby formula with cigarettes and alcohol. Strange and unfair. Yeah, it seems it was to do with some EU regulation, which I agree with you. I can't uh, fully understand. And then some commentary in on migrants and the number of migrants who are coming to this country in particular. The government are trying to crack down on the number of migrants who they feel are using it as a backdoor. These are economic migrants. These are people who are fleeing uh, countries where there isn't war, where there isn't any aggression and they're coming into this country because they want a better life and they want to be able to get jobs and they want to be able to provide for themselves and probably be able to provide for their families uh, back home. So because of that uh, the Minister is adding two new countries to the list of safe uh, countries and then they're putting new procedures in place whereby people who come from any of the countries on the safe list uh, they will have their uh, application processed within 90 days. Pat in from says he always looks at the whole issue of immigration in a roundabout way. He said some of those that can afford to leave their country and that's what happens and we hear many many stories of people paying you know smugglers to get them out of their country and get them into a a country like Ireland. People can pay up to €10,000. Pat says who he always feels great sorrow for are those that are left behind. He said maybe we should be helping the countries where these people come from rather than those coming here looking for help. He says during our famine times so many people couldn't afford to leave the country and the many that did remain, how many of them starved to death. Yeah, and that's what happened when we had famine in this country. Some people were able to scrape together uh, money. In many incidents, they got money together for one family member to get on. God knows, God help them. Many of them were coffin chips. But the whole idea was that they would get to America and that they would go over there and that they would, you know, set up some kind of a life. They would get a job. And the plan was that they would send the money back to help the people that they left behind. And that's why I always get annoyed when I hear particularly the far right agitators when they constantly talk about asylum seekers and refugees as being military aged men and why is it always military aged men where are all the women well where are all the women is the exact same reason why the Irish single men of military age went abroad to try to make a living in order to look after their families back home we had it very much as Pat said during the famine. But if you even look back to the 30s, 40s, 50s, even up into the 60s, I think I take it many of uh, many of our own families will have stories. I certainly can put my hand up and say there was a story about my grandfather uh, who went over to England to work and he was sending the money back to my to my grandmother um, because there wasn't work available for him uh, here in Ireland. So, you know, he went he went over and then eventually what happened was he set up and, you know, got work and managed to get a place to live and then my grandmother ended up going over to England uh, with him but that's what families do and that's what families do all over the world they will get money together 
in order to cover the cost to send one person abroad and they'll always and if you're travelling from countries where you're going to end up on a boat out in the middle of the Mediterranean you're going to send your strongest and your strongest is usually a military aged man it's usually a young man in the family he'll be the one that will be sent out and he's, he's sent out in order to try to get a life to save the others that, that are back home that's why it always frustrates me when I hear this argument about military uh, aged uh, men and here's a great text in from Justine to say hi Patricia I would like you to ask your listeners most of whom I imagine have somebody or have a family member in Australia in Canada in America in the UK maybe anywhere across Europe what is the difference between an Irish economic migrant and an Algerian economic migrant. If we as Irish people can describe other human beings looking for better opportunities as being chancers or somehow cheats of the system, then surely it's a very sad day for this country. As a media outlet with a big listenership, maybe you could start to showcase the many, many wonderful people who have come to this country and have worked to make it a better, more vibrant place. I'm ashamed of the rhetoric that regular people have adopted as almost acceptable. At the end of of the day, look to the top of the pile for those who have stolen from us or have cheated us. Don't look at the bottom where the most vulnerable exist. That's some Justine. That's a fantastic um, point. Uh, well done. And actually, even only yesterday, when I think about it, I had that wonderful professor on who was talking about the great work he's doing in UCC, uh, Professor Jans Walter. Judging by his accent, I would say from one of the Nordic countries, so many, many people have come from overseas and have come to this country. I've constantly talked, Justine, and you've probably heard me talk about it, how our health system wouldn't survive without migrant uh, workers and many of those are coming from uh, countries where they don't have the same standard of living like India for example that we would have here and people coming from from Malaysia and other countries like that and they're wonderful wonderful uh, nurses and we've doctors from all over the world so yes we do we are very reliant on our migrant workers who do wonderful things for our community and even when I was talking about the Jeep for Jason uh, Dr. Jason Vandervelt look at what a wonderful human being Dr. Jason is and look what he's done for his community and how what he has brought to uh, West Cork and the lives that he, he has saved so yes there are many many examples of people who have come here for a different life and in many cases a better life who bring with them wonderful, wonderful attributes and and talents that they share with their local community. So well said, uh, Justine. And Micah says, "Uh, Patricia, I've no doubt but Minister Helen McEntee, our Minister for Justice, will will come to grips with the influx of foreign nationals coming into this country. The Minister is a most distinguished lady and she doesn't, doesn't suffer fools gladly. When she gets behind something, she doesn't let it go until the mission is accomplished just watch this space. Kind regards. And that's from uh, Michael. 0818103103. And here's something completely different that John Paul has come across, particularly when we were talking about uh, older people in the last hour and we were talking about audiology. I mean, that very sad text in from a listener who feels she's been forgotten about just because she's 75 and, and she's waiting on an appointment. And there are many older, wonderful older people who have worked hard all of their lives who do feel they are left behind a little bit. Well, John Paul has come across an article. It is from, I think, the Netherlands, where it is in the Netherlands, where they have decided to open up certain checkouts at uh, supermarkets and they're known as the chat 
checkout and they introduced him. It's the Jumbo supermarket. So I take it they're a little bit like our Super Value or our Tesco or our Duns or our Little or our Aldi. One of those kind of big, big supermarkets. So they've introduced these chat checkouts. And the idea is, is to offer customers a slower lane where chat is encouraged for those who aren't in such a hurry. And they're making the point that we unfortunately live in a world where everything seems to be so rushed. And certain of our supermarkets should remain anonymous for now. You know what I'm talking about. Have this thing about having to get you through the checkout as quick as possible. And there's no time for any kind of banter because it's almost like they're on the clock. So in the Netherlands, they were saying they noticed that, and, and it is mainly older people, but it doesn't just have to be older people, but they noticed that there was a level of loneliness and that some people go out shopping every day and they do it just to go out and pick up a few bits and pieces in order that they can get out and, you know, interact with other human human beings. And people like to have a bit of a chin wag as they're paying for their fruit and veg and they like to have somebody nice and friendly sitting there at the chat uh, checkout. So that's what this jumbo supermarket decided to do and they're getting really, really positive feedback uh, since they introduced it and they started as they say in 2019 and then in 2021 they pledged to spread them nationwide with the aim of opening up 200 of these checkouts and they're going to target areas uh, that are particularly affected by loneliness. I just think that is a wonderful, wonderful idea. Now I'm not surprised to read that this jumbo supermarket, they're a family business and supermarket chain who are very much at the heart of uh, society and they see their shops as an important meeting places uh, for many people and they like to play a role in identifying and reducing loneliness. I think that is great because I remember when we were speaking during it was during the pandemic when you weren't able to travel very far and you weren't able to meet up with people. I remember getting one of the most heartbreaking emails in from a, a listener who drove to his supermarket uh, so many times a week and he just parked up in the supermarket and he sat in his car, might have sat there for half an hour, 45 minutes, just watching people. And he said it was just to see other human beings walking around. And I just thought that absolutely broke my heart. He had nobody calling to him. And I think I, I can't remember if we were in the middle of the time when people were cocooning and all of that or not. But to me, it just broke my heart that somebody was in a position where they were driving to a supermarket just to watch uh, people. So I wonder how many people would like the idea. Would you like a chat checkout? Now, can I say it's not for everyone. They do accept that there are people who have, you know, daily targets and deadlines and there are people and I have to put my hand up. There are times I'm always seem to be rushing, particularly if I need to pick up Marsha from her day centre. So I've often run into supermarkets and I just want to get in there, grab my bits, get to the till as quickly as possible get my item scanned and get out of there because I'm up against the clock. So I accept there's a lot of people who need very, very busy lives. But there are also other people who don't want all that rushed modern society and they want to be able to go in buy their bits and pieces, go to the checkout, have a nice, smiley, happy face and somebody who is willing to chat to them, even if it's only about, God, it's a cold day out there today, isn't it? 0818 103 103. C103 Jobs. Community employment vacancies are available in the Formoy, Kilworth and Araglin area. Now it's for caretakers and assistant youth workers. Call Michelle 87 Four five nine nine two five zero. Hallisey and Partners Solicitors, they're based in Bandon. They're looking for a full or indeed a part-time secretary might suit. Email your CV and a cover letter to Eileen Collins at 
hplaw.ie for the attention of Eileen Collins, the office manager. Or you can post to their offices. They're based at 41 South Main Street in Bandon. Construction worker wanted for a job in Mallow. Now it's to help trades and to do ad hoc tasks on site. CVs to jobs at habitatfrench.com. And the Clonakilty Community Sports Association, they've got a part-time position available for an administrator slash general operative. It's to deal with queries and bookings, etc. CVs to info at clonakiltysports.com and please mark it for the attention of the manager. You'll find all the details and many more job opportunities by going online now. Just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is... C103. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. As we've been hearing with Mario Mani on our news this morning, a post mortem examination is to be carried out today at Cork University Hospital. It's on the human remains which were found in East Cork yesterday. Southern correspondent with the Irish Independent, Ralph Regal, says the authorities are going to do everything they can to try to identify uh, the deceased person and Ralph Regal joins me. Good morning to you, Ralph. Good morning, Patricia. Now, was this a targeted search by the Gardaí in East Cork? Yes, it was, Patricia. They they had information and they were searching a particular area. And though there had been previous targeted searches in the, the greater, I suppose, harbour area, East Cork area, um, over recent times, and the, the highest profile of which would have happened in Little Island, uh, farmland and, and harbourland in, in e, e Little Island, that would have been before Christmas. So there was a number of Gardaí, they were assisted by a canine unit and very quickly the canine unit located uh, these skeletal remains. They were located just off the Middleton to Whitegate Road, um, roughly very close to, to, to Rostellan, uh, about 60 to 80 metres off the road in a shallow gully come shallow grave uh the the remains were fully clothed obviously very um badly decomposed and um, one of my sources was saying it was obvious that they were there for a matter of months rather than a rather matter of weeks and the scene was sealed off there's forensic and technical officers uh, examining the area and then the remains were removed to the morgue at cork university hospital where a full post-mortem examination uh, will be conducted today by assistant state pathologist dr margaret bolster now the primary aim of that firstly will be to identify the remains it's quite possible given the condition of the remains that that may be dependent on dental or DNA records. And if it is DNA records, then that'll probably take 48 to 72 hours. Um, But Gardaí are hopeful that the fact that the body was fully clothed, that the clothing may help in terms of the identification process. And then after that, they'll be looking to try and determine a cause of death. Again, which may not be easy given the condition of the remains, but they're hopeful that they will secure those two things. And then that will direct the nature uh, of their investigation going forward. Yeah, and Gardaí believe it could be the remains of the, the man who went missing from Cork City, uh, Kieran Quilligan. Uh, what's known about Kieran's disappearance? Yeah, I mean, really from the very beginning, Gardaí have been very concerned about the safety and welfare of Kieran Quilligan. Now, he was last seen on the evening of September the 1st last year. 
Um, thanks to CCTV footage from around Cork City Centre, Gardy were able to piece together his last known movements, and he's seen leaving a property on Anderson's Quay in Cork City Centre. He then makes his way through the city centre at points he's accompanied by a lone male, and they head in the direction of Proby's Key. And Mr. Quillington is seen going into a property at uh, Proby's Key, but he is not seen exiting that building. Now, Gardy believe that he did leave the building, but that he left it in a vehicle. And they're very concerned that there may have been some incident uh, in that general area that would have basically involved violence and they were very concerned for Mr Quilligan's safety and well-being. Now there's been multiple appeals um, over the last couple of months. Um, Gardy appealed firstly for anyone who might have been driving through the area and who saw anything unusual or suspicious. Then there was an appeal for any hackneys or taxi drivers or even ordinary um, vehicles that were fitted with dash cam footage. Gardy wanted to examine any footage over a specific time period. And then, of course, there's been a number of targeted searches since then. Again, the highest profile of which was the one that was conducted uh, in the Little Island area. And did any of uh, Kieran's family travel to the area where the remains were found yesterday? Yeah, it's it's been a particularly traumatic and difficult time for them. Um, now, a Garda liaison officer has been appointed, and the Gardaí have been doing their best to keep the family appraised of developments uh, with the investigation. I should stress, at the moment, it is still a missing persons investigation, uh, but the family obviously are very worried uh, for. Kieran. Now, they did travel to Little Island last year when the searches were ongoing there, and there were members of the family that travelled to Rostellan yesterday when news of this awful discovery um, first broke. Now, again, nothing has been confirmed that there is a link to the Kieran Quilligan missing person investigation, but certainly that's what Gardy are looking very long and hard at at the moment, given I suppose, the similarities and given the general areas that are, are are involved. And the guards have said that they will keep the family fully briefed on what, what happens. But the key developments are going to be the post-mortem examination in terms of identifying the remains and trying to confirm a, a cause of death. If it is confirmed that it is Kieran Quilligan, we are expecting Gardy to confirm a murder investigation. OK, but because, as you say, the remains are skeletal, any indication of how long it will take to identify? Because you say it is going to make it harder. Yeah, I mean, if it's dental records, Patricia, I think you're talking probably 24 hours. So okay. if, if dental records are there, you probably might have an identification today, possibly tomorrow. If Gardy find that they have to rely on DNA analysis, well, then that will take longer. That could take between 48 and 72 hours. And um, so Gardy, are, I think, are trying to dampen down expectations in terms of the pace of developments with this. They're, they're hopeful that there will be news in terms of the identification. And then what they're going to do is basically hope that they can get some determination in terms of the cause of death of this individual. Again, it's possible that the clothing involved may aid with the identification process, but but we've not been um, we've not been briefed further on that. Yeah, because obviously you said he was spotted on on CCTV the day he went missing, so they will have clear CCTV footage of what he was wearing that day. Exactly, and there already has been descriptions issued by the Gardaí in terms of the clothing that uh, Mr. Quilligan was last seen wearing. Now, Gardaí have spoken to the individual that was seen with Mr. Quilligan on CCTV footage. 
It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And Gardy, I'm told, also have um, certain lines of information in terms of people that may or may not have been um, in the company of Mr. Quilligan after Proby's Key. So I think they have a lot of information. They're playing their cards very close to their chest at the moment. Um, I would expect that once we get identification and a possible cause of death, you will see quite rapid developments in this case. Okay, it's just so sad for the, we think in particular of the Quilligan family and um, of Kieran as well. Okay, listen, Ralph, as always, thank you for that and thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Good morning to Good you. Morning. That is Southern Correspondent with the Irish Independent, Ralph uh, Regal. And... Uh, Difficult, difficult time for Kieran Quilligan's family as they await to find out if these skeletal remains are his or not. Tusla, who are the Child and Family Agency, say it is working towards clearing a backlog of people who want to trace their relatives. This is under the Birth and Information Tracing Act, which was signed into law in the summer of 2022, to discuss how difficult it is for those people waiting to get the information on their birth families. I'm joined by Chloe Chase who is project leader with Bernardo's Birth History Service. Good morning to you, Chloe. Hi, Patricia. How are you? Thank you very much for having me. Well, thank you for taking our call. Now, Tusla say they're receiving on average 40 new applications per week. So I assume from that that the waiting list is only getting longer. Would you be fearful, Chloe, that some are elderly people who have waited decades to come forward, maybe women who gave up babies many, many years ago? Absolutely, Patricia. And I suppose that is the reality of what we're seeing into the service every single week is that people who are quite elderly, who have waited, when Tusley yesterday gave us the figures of people could be waiting four to five years, that that figure of four to five years is not the start of their wait. As you said there, people have been waiting their whole lives, 40, 50, even 60 years to embark on these traces so this really is a wait that for some people they're just not prepared to wait for because they've taken so long to even get to this stage of embarking on a trace and applying for support for a trace. So you applied to Tusla and you wait to be allocated a social worker. How, how long does the whole process then take? 
So I and and as I as I just said there, I suppose it is some are being told between four and five years. Now, Tusla have their own way of prioritising these lists where, you know, if somebody maybe had significant health needs or they were quite elderly, they would be prioritised on that list. But for some, it still is too late. And and we have heard people come into us in the service where they are actually, they're, they're months too late. And, and that is the reality of this. It's not that it's years ago, it's months too late. So it's people who... If their trace had been picked up only a number of months earlier, they may have had that opportunity to connect with the birth relative. So it's it's quite significant, the impact. And I suppose just to say, Patricia, as well, you know, TUSLA have worked very, very hard within the realms of this legislation. They've worked very hard, first of all, to, to work within providing people with it, with their early life information within the time frame legislatively under the legislation. And that they've done that significantly under-resourced. And I suppose it's now to realise that this is the next hurdle. They're again under-resourced. They're calling for more support. And it's the individual at the who's filled in that application and has actually taken every bit of strength in them to apply for a tracing service. They're the person being impacted by this. And, and it's, you know, it's taken long enough to get to this stage of being able to apply for a trace in this way. And now to hear that the waiting lists are so long is, is very, very difficult for people who have waited so long already. Is it utterly heartbreaking, Chloe, when somebody does complete that tracing only to discover, as you say, sometimes it might just be months that they're too late, the person has passed away. Is is that just utterly it's, heartbreaking? I suppose, Patricia, it, it's it's very hard to understand it. If if not, you know, if if not, um, actually gone through it yourself, you know, for it's it's for somebody who has maybe been adopted or has been has placed a child for adoption. You, you you build up this picture in your head of the reunion, of of the meeting, of what life will be like after that reunion. And, you know, where we would work a lot with people and to support them to manage those expectations, because as we've learned, those expectations don't always meet the reality. So it's about managing those expectations. But it's completely different when, I suppose, that reunion can never even have had the opportunity to happen. And and now you're faced with a completely new reality of potentially no birth mother or birth father that you can connect with or for some it can go the other side of this as well Patricia where we've had it in the service where we've had birth mothers who have tried to trace and found out very very sadly that their son or daughter that they may have placed for adoption is is has passed away. As well, has passed away. Yeah, and and if if it is a, a parent, uh, you know, a birth mother or father that has passed away, can the person then reach out to siblings to you know brothers so and sisters? With, um, under the legislation, an adopted adult or um, someone who is subject of an illegal birth registration or who has been boarded out as a child, Tusla then can look to. Uh, I suppose if if it's a birth mother or a birth father, they can look to potentially a half sibling or other relative to try and reach out then and to uh, try and form that connection and to learn a bit about, I suppose, your birth family, which is so, so important for people in understanding around themselves, their own identity. They may have a lot of questions around medical information and other information like, you know, the, the baby pictures, the, those informations about, uh, you know, information about how we were born and things like that, that we all just take for granted, I suppose, that 
we know, but for, for, for so many that are, are this legislation applies to, they don't have those answers. And, and that can be really, really challenging for people to live with all of those unanswered questions. And people still keep this secret, uh, Chloe, maybe never opening up to a family member about the fact that they gave a child up for adoption many years ago. And and that, Patricia, I, I think is, is, you know, given the level of talk in, in the past couple of years, you know, we've had various commissions, we've had the new accent into law, around adoption and adoption-related practices, it may come as a surprise that in present day in Ireland, there is still such a level of secrecy around adoption and adoption-related practices. So I suppose it's for people to understand that the loneliness that some can actually feel in this as well. You know, we we would have some birth mothers who access the service and, and they were told, off you go, get on with your life. And they would have got married, they would have had other children. And for some of these women, they haven't told their husbands, they haven't told their children. So it, it, it's very, very sensitive. It's very, very emotive. And I suppose it's as a service, Bernardo's here in the, the Birth History Service, we are a service that can try and support people to maybe explore some of those emotions. You know, we know we can't conduct the traces ourselves, but we can support people in you know, potentially navigating that journey and, and the emotional impact of that. And when you work with both, because I know you work with both adopted and the birth mothers, yes. what, what effect does reunification have when both do want to meet up and when it works? When it works, and, and I suppose as well, we, we would do a lot of work, Patricia, with um, both sides, the, as you said there, the adopted adult and the uh, birth mother around managing those expectations, you know, so coming to a reunion and we have a built up in our heads so, so much around what this is going to be like, what the relationship is going to be like. And it's it's about managing that because if, if it can be very difficult if, if those expectations are not reached. And when a reunion, I suppose, is done, um, done, that properly isn't the right word there, but when it's done well, I suppose, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it can be very, very positive. But the other side of it is it, it can be very, very challenging for people. Somebody now who has, has grown up in their, their family, that they've grown up all their lives, and they manage, as we all know, in, in families, it can be hard managed family dynamics. But now suddenly you may be faced with the dynamics of your birth mother's family and your birth father's family. So it's about, again, managing those dynamics in in multiple families and how, I suppose, you in, interact and mind yourself and put boundaries in place with, while managing those dynamics, which is very, very challenging for people. This this isn't, you know, it, it's very unfamiliar for a lot of people. Um, and, and again, there's no right or wrong. It's different for absolutely everybody. So it's, again, I suppose the advice that we would give a lot of people is about minding yourself in it, not rushing into it. And, and just, I suppose, thinking about your needs in it as well. And that's, that's from both. That's from the, the maybe the adopted person, the subject of a legal birth registrant or registration or the boarded out, who, boarded out individual who may be embarking on the trace, but also the birth parents. You know, it's about really minding yourself within the process. Well, a listener's raising an interesting uh, point. Uh, she said her, her friend is adopted and she's been encouraging her friend to get involved in the Birth uh, and Information Tracing Act to find out who her birth mother was. But my friend yes. said she's afraid of hurting her adopted parents who gave her a wonderful life. Is that common? Yeah. It is 
It is, Patricia. It's very common. Um, and what we see at times as well that some adopted adults, maybe they'll wait until their adoptive parents have passed on themselves mm. to embark on that trace as well. And it, quite understandably, you know, it, it, there is a fear there of, you know, what will my, my lovely mum and dad that gave me a great life, what will they think now? Will they think that they didn't do a good enough job because I want to go and, and to look for my birth mother, my birth father? So it's, it's very understandable, those feelings of maybe not being ready to trace. And I think at times I think it can be, it can be understood that maybe everybody wants to trace. Everybody wants to have a reunion. And that's not always the case either. And I think it's about... I suppose, spreading the message as well that that's okay. In in Bernardo's in the Birth History Service, we run a lot of groups for, we run groups for birth mothers, for adopted adults and individual subjects of legal birth registration. And what we hear again and again and again, the strength in those groups is the meeting somebody else who has had a similar experience. So, no, not all the stories are, are the same and they're all different. Everybody has their own personal story, but it's really about meeting somebody else who gets it. So, you know, in, in that case as well, where I'd say that, that friend of, of that lady is mm. probably the best will in the world and wanting to support. But, you know, it's it's about somebody then that actually has lived through this themselves. It's the shared experiences. And that's what we find within the groups. It, it, it works really, really well to provide that space um, to, to allow people to meet and form them connections and to lessen that feeling of, you know, it's not just me. We see it again and again where we've individuals come to our groups and they may be in their 50s and 60s and they've they've never met another birth mother or they've never met another adopted person. And it, it really is isolating to feel I'm the only person that this actually impacts. So the groups are there really to try and lessen that feeling and to act as a support. Supports which will go on long beyond, I suppose, our service and, and friendships that will form outside of our service as well. Yeah. And, and, you know, you think today, uh, Chloe, you know, we, we talk so openly about uh, adoption yeah. and, and, you know, that shame and that stigma is just Absolutely. thankfully is so gone. But but obviously it still lingers for a lot okay. of people because there's a question in, and, and I don't know whether it, it's it's coming from somebody who has has adopted. But somebody said, could you ask your expert, uh, it's Chloe uh, Chambers from, from Bernardus, how do you go about telling a family that you had a baby? It might have been 40, 50 years ago. How do you go about starting that conversation? Well, this, this Patricia, is something I suppose that we do have into the into the service as well where we've birth mothers you know as I said who who were, were told by whether it be the, the religious orders whoever it was you know off you go and, and live your life and, and forget about all of this experience and as we know well that is next impossible to do to just uh, forget but did go on did marry and, and potentially have other children and didn't tell anybody so I suppose what we would be advocating for there is to you know seek support you know, come to a service like ourselves, access support if you're able to. But also remember as well that your family love you. They're, you know, they're there for you. They act as, they will be a support to you. It's, it's, I, I know, and again, I'm, I'm not saying these are the feelings of this particular lady phone or texting in, but I suppose some of the, some of the feelings that we would see birth mothers have is, is that fear of what will my family think yeah. of me? It, it is that shame that is still actually there of that I done such a bold thing. I done something so wrong. That's, 
as we all know, the most natural thing in the world and a beautiful baby to come out of it. You know, it's it's about accessing the support and for, look, nine times out of ten, your your family will be there as a support. They, to sit them down, to tell your family um, and, and, and to explain to them, you know, what what has happened. It's, it's really about, I suppose, seeking that support as well and believing in your family as well and the support that they're going to give you. You know, you're, 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 as I said, your family love you and they're, they're not going to... And that, and that shame is gone. It's, 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 it's so it's, gone. It's like, no longer a secret. Yeah. So, it, so even though, you know, we started out by talking about uh, waiting lists and, 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 yes. and, and hopefully Tusla will get the resources that, that, that they need, would you still yes. encourage um, uh, people, uh, Chloe, who are listening that this will have sparked something in them, people who either adopted themselves or people who are a birth mother. Would you encourage them to, to reach out? To reach out to the legislation? Yeah, is it, yeah. Or to reach out? Yeah. I, I would, I would, I, I absolutely would. You know, we we're, we work with Tusla to support and we, you know, we, we will... Um, week in, week out, we're, we're, we're working collaboratively to try and support the individuals from a therapeutic place that are that TUSLA are trying to either provide the early life information or to provide the tracing services to. And they have such a team of experienced professional social workers that if at all possible to wait, that it, it is a great support to have if embarking on this trace. And as I said, we know that is not an option for everybody. So I think the call really has to be for extra resources for TUSLA to allow them to, to provide these tracing services, not in this this absolutely long, long waiting list. And because, you know, I, the other side of it as well is even once you're allocated a social worker who's going to start your trace, a trace may take a number of years as yeah. well. It's yeah. not a given thing that, you know, once you've been allocated. So time is really, really... I suppose important here and and really really important to to be allocating these cases and and opening them as soon as possible. Okay, and I can see a couple of people saying well done to the work that uh, Bernardo's uh, does, uh, particularly in this uh, field. And of course, we you know we all associate Bernardo's as as a children's charity, but I think one, yes. one of your logos is isn't it that childhood lasts a lifetime? Absolutely, and that's where I suppose we we really fit within the ethos of Bernardo's childhood does last a lifetime, and where where we are working with adults who you know it's the impact of that early separation between mother and child and the trauma of that, and we're seeing this every day within the work we do, where we can support people to work through some of that trauma. So it is you know it's it's very fitting. Childhood lasts a lifetime for the service as well and in, in where we sit. And it is, I suppose, not a lot of people associate Bernardo's with adult work. And, yeah. and I suppose this, this service has been actually around since 1977. Yeah. Where, you know, we're a very established service and, and it's, it's really grown over the past number of years. And, and we've seen a massive increase to the, I suppose, people, number of people who are engaging in the service and seeking support through us as well. So it really is, it's, it's an under-resourced area at the minute and not resourced adequately to meet the need and the demand for these people who have waited so long already. Okay, well hopefully with a, a lot of highlighting of this particular issue, Tusla will get the resources uh, it Definitely. needs. Listen Chloe, I've really enjoyed our chat. Thank you for thank that. Thank you Patricia. And uh, yes, continue, good you luck. So you, you do amazing work at Bernardo's. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Lovely well, to speak to you. Bye thank bye, you bye bye. That is uh, uh, Chloe Chambers, a project leader with Bernardo's birth.
history service doing just amazing work with both uh, adopted people and birth mothers. A number of, of texts and comments coming in to do with uh, immigrants and uh, particularly what are seen as illegal immigrants, people who come here as economic migrants, they're coming here for a better life. Let me just bring you some of them. Most of them are on the same theme. So let me just go down through some of them. Billy and Clonakilty was on to say, when we speak about our grandparents, our great-grandparents, or indeed even in some cases our parents, who left this country for a better life and they left so that we could have a better life here in Ireland. We need to realise that when the Irish went to America and England they were treated very badly and it's well documented. The abuse they received and the jobs they got, nobody else wanted to do. When they arrived in England or in the US of A, there was no social welfare waiting for them, no housing, no temporary housing. So people needed uh, to work and get working as quickly as possible. They may have sent money back, but they worked very hard over the years when they went abroad. And can I say that's what the economic migrants want to do? They want to come here and work so they can send the money back. But anyway, someone else says the difference between the Irish going to other countries and the ones coming here, they're not handed money and uh, accommodation that they get here. Bear in mind that asylum seekers get €38.30 a week when they arrive here. It's only when they're allowed to work. And many of them, that's what they want to do. They want to work. But anyway, yes, I accept that. There is accommodation. Except for the, on the last count, there's 600 sleeping on the streets of Dublin because there literally is no room left at the inn. There's no accommodation for uh, international protection. Males, anyway, they're trying to look after women and children. Hi, Patricia. Illegal immigrants are called illegal immigrants for a reason because they're entering this country illegally. They're not the same as legal migrants who come here to work are indeed. They're not the same as asylum seekers but the media often mix them up. Many Irish people migrated to England or other places but they did so legally. Try to enter Australia illegally. Hint, you won't get very far. Uh, Anyone who is doing anything illegal should not be accepted. We have enough people here already who are doing illegal things and therefore our prisons are full. Meanwhile, the media needs to stop the misinformation caused by conflating these uh, two different uh, groups. And can I also say, you're right, uh, many of our Irish go abroad and they're legally entitled to, but there's 50,000 illegal Irish people working in the States, keeping their head down there. They went over there as economic migrants, they couldn't get green cards and they're working illegally. There are also illegal Irish working in Australia who go out there on a holiday visa and then stay working when they're caught, they're deported though uh, very, very quickly. Mike says Patricia, most Irish people went to the likes of America, Australia, Canada, New Zealand uh, Mike himself said, I went to Australia and I was 18, I went on my own and I worked hard, I got no handouts um, I could afford to buy a house after a year. Whoa, you wouldn't come to Ireland and buy a house after a year, well done you and Mike. At the end of the day we have to remember Ireland is only a small country. We don't go to third world countries, why? Because there's no work available there's no point in taking unskilled third world refugees according to Mike well I'll stop you on that one Mike Uh, we have full employment in this country because there are jobs which are deemed unskilled that Irish people don't want to do so you know there are many migrants who come here and take up those jobs that the Irish don't want to do Hi Patricia you've overlooked one thing people coming into this country to work and set up a new life that's fine I have no problem with with that it's the people who come here for an an easy life who have everything handed to them for nothing that's where the problem is they get free healthcare free education free housing 
etc. Do you think that that is not a kick in the teeth for Irish people who have nothing and is not entitled to anything simply because he or she was born in the wrong country? Because Irish counts for nothing now. And remember, Patricia, when the Irish went to England, America, other countries, they had to work and work hard for every penny they earned. They didn't have anything handed to them. A lot of them slept in shelters and went to work the next morning and back to the shelters when they finished. I'm sorry, Patricia, but I can't get what's going on with this country. That's from Claire. Hi, Patricia. Why are they bringing in more refugees when there's no place to house them? We haven't houses for our own. Patricia, could you ask any of the TDs to explain to people why this is happening? Enjoying your show. Well, we don't bring refugees. Refugees arrive, unfortunately. That's, and that's why the government are trying to do their best to cut down on the number of so-called economic migrants that are arriving because once they arrive, once they say they are uh, claiming uh, either political asylum or that they they want to go into the I-pass, they then have to be accepted. And that's, and that's the problem. Nobody's looking for them to come. They just arrive. John says, Patricia, isn't it amazing how the upcoming local and European elections has spurred the government into action on immigration? They now know how big an issue this is. They've now announced more safe countries with a crackdown on illegal economic migrants, but they're still allowing people from safe countries apply for asylum here. This is insane. These people should be deported ASAP, says John. Yeah, I mean, in fairness, what Helen McEntee is announcing they'll be given 90 days, but I can see a number of other people are saying that, that if they arrive here from a safe country, the very fact that the country has deemed these countries safe, where there's no persecution, no torture, no degrading treatment or or punishment, no threat of indiscriminate violence. Uh, Therefore, as soon as they arrive, should they not be put back on the plane immediately? Yeah, I can see a number of people are raising that uh, point. And then somebody else simply says, are we not all God's children? Have we lost, and I'd hate to think we've lost our humanity. I really would absolutely hate to think because I think we are a great country. We're a caring country. And and it's just at the end of the day, yeah, that, you know, we're all God's children. It's people trying to get a better life for themselves. But where does it all end? 0818103103. Now, we've had a couple of people on uh, about Holly Kearns. I know yesterday, and uh, I didn't get around to it yesterday because we were putting feelers out. We were hoping to speak with Holly, but I know Kitty was on to us uh, yesterday saying, why is Holly Kearns closed her constituency office in Bandon? She says she's closing it for security reasons. Kitty lives in Bandon and says Bandon is a very safe town. It's sad that she thinks that she's not safe in our town. That was in from Kitty in Bandon. And then Miriam in Bandon said she was very upset to read the statement that Holly Kearns made to the examiner about her Bandon office. She says it makes Bandon sound and appear as if it's not a safe place. I met so many people around the town yesterday who felt the same. I feel at this stage it would be better for Holly to come out and say something about why this has happened and what has happened and why she decided to close her constituency office. I do hope she's okay and safe but making a a statement like that saying she felt unsafe, that has implications for the town. By the way, Miriam says she did vote for Holly Kearns last time uh, round. Now this appeared in the papers uh, yesterday, I think it's in some of the papers again today, that Holly Kearns, who of course now is the Social Democrats uh, leader, she decided at the weekend to close her abandoned constituency office and she cited security concerns. So over the weekend, after a long-running campaign of abuse, intimidation and menace which has been directed at her, 
uh, Holly has closed up or has closed up the office in Bandon and she said, I quote, it's disappointing to have to take this step, but we are determined as a team and a constituency office to not let it impact on the work we do to represent the people of Cork South West. So what she's saying now is scheduled meetings are now arranged by getting in touch with the office. Now, earlier she said in the statement that following a security review last summer, in consultation with her team, a decision was made to close the Bandon office. She said that this was after Gardaí advised her against holding constituency clinics. Now, remember, she's the only female TD for the entire county of Cork and she has previously revealed and we've spoken with her on this programme about it, about a persistent online stalker who then began to show up at her home and that left her absolutely terrified. She was forced to install CCTV. She had to get a domestic security system into her own home, not just her constituency office, this was into her home. The stalker had been an online troll at first before harassing her in real life. Holly spoke publicly of being subjected to abuse of a sexual nature and pornography was sent to her in the post. And she said it started off with online messages from what was just an anonymous uh, account. Then she said there was an amount of public commentary and that's public commentary is difficult because everybody else can see it. And then there was the private messages. She was getting voice notes. She was getting letters and then a person turned up in person. She said, I think that was the scale that it went from for her and it happened over a period of time. She said it wasn't until somebody who had started off with just messages to her work phone then ended up turning up at her house on several occasions and wouldn't stop doing it. So that's when it changed for her. She was up in Dublin at one point when she got a message from this person saying, I'm outside your house. She said it went on for a long time and she said the worst thing that can happen is when it actually comes to your own home, the house that you live in where you should feel uh, safe. And I know when we uh, spoke with her last year about it, I remember she said at the time that if she had known how bad the abuse was going to get, bearing in mind that a lot of this, particularly the online abuse, now I'm not saying that male TDs don't get it because by God they do, but a, a, a lot more of it is aimed at female, particularly of a sexual nature and it became quite threatening and quite frightening and she said at the time when she went public about it that if she had known at the time she actually thinks now she wouldn't have gone into politics and you know politics is a job that she absolutely loves and she's obviously very good at her job that she's ended up as the Social Democrats leader in a very short space of time as a TD to end up as a leader of a political party that is no uh, mean uh, uh, achievement Uh, so she's good at what she does and yet if she was to go back in time, if she could have had a crystal ball, she's kind of saying that that she wouldn't have uh, done it. And in Senator Maloney in The Independent today said a party colleague said Social Democrat members understood Holly's decision to close the office in Bandon with staff afraid of who might walk in. The threat level was just too much in the end. Now, Gardaí have carried out uh, free security assessments for TDs and that included inspections of their constituency office where the clinics are uh, often uh, held and uh, they, it was on their advice. And remember, now luckily 
we've we've had a number of attacks on constituency offices. We've seen graffiti and posters and offensive material either pushed through the door or plastered onto the front of constituency offices. Thankfully, there has been no direct physical assaults have happened in this country. But we only have to look across the water to England where we have unfortunately seen deaths uh, of um, um, MPs in England uh, who, you know, I mean, there was that, the, the one I think that we'll, we'll all remember, that lovely lady, the Labour MP, Joe Cox, and it was in the run-up to the Brexit Brexit referendum. She was against uh, a Brexit and she was shot and stabbed and she died on the street. And then in 2021, there was another British Conservative who was fatally stabbed and that was at a constituency uh, clinic. So obviously that's at the back of the mind, I think, of all of our TDs. And and we know we're seeing a rise in the far right. And you're just fearful that somebody, I'm not saying that all far right people are, are capable of murdering somebody, but you just don't know how far some of them are going to go. So I think, and I can, you know, I can see from the calls that we're getting in from people in Bandon who were upset because they feel it's kind of a slur on Bandon that Holly's had to close this uh, office. Uh, but I think when when you look at the statement, and by the way, she's we, we've reached out to her, but she, she's not commenting uh, for not available to speak to us. And I did, I did see yesterday in the paper she's not commenting further on this. But when you see it, it's because of it's not it's not necessarily that it's Bandon is unsafe, but. She's fearful and her staff are fearful that if she holds constituency office and it's open to the public, that people will travel. Not necessarily abandoned people are going to come in and cause any kind of problems, but it's people who are like that troll, that person who started out initially just sending her nasty messages and then turned up, he became a, a stalker. And that's what they're fearful of. So I can kind of understand where Holly and her staff are coming from. 0818103103. As I say, we did reach out to Holly, but she said she's not available. But any time that she is available to talk to us on this one, if she wants to expand further, we would love to chat with her. Text and WhatsApps are available on 0862. 103 103. The C103 Cork Diary. With Cork County Council, making Cork County the place to live, work, visit, and invest in. See corkcoco.ie. Couple of bingos on tonight. Shambali Moore bingo is on 8 o'clock in the community centre. Their jackpot is €3,400. And Bantir bingo is also on tonight. There, there starts at half eight, and the jackpot in Bantir is 2900 The Mount Hillary Athletic Club in Bantir are holding a five-mile road race on Mother's Day. When is Mother's Day? Sunday the 10th of March, you've been forewarned. Now the entry to the five-mile road race is €15 and it's through eventmaster.ie. The first 200 to enter will receive a custom-made buff. I don't know what a custom-made buff is. I'll have to find out what that is. Uh, Puss in Boots, that's the Rathmore Pantomime. That is continuing in Rathmore Community Centre. It's on from tomorrow night, Wednesday, until next Saturday. And they have a matinee on Sunday. The booking office is open daily, 2 to 6, next door to Christie's uh, Takeaway. And please note, Network Ireland West Cork event with Virginia Foley will uh, take place at Atkins Hall on Chapel Street in Dunmanway. And that's at 7 o'clock tomorrow night and the Mallow Art Club will welcome artist Cathy Tiernan to their West End Art Gallery on Thursday of this week. She's had many solo exhibitions with displays at the Limerick City Gallery and the Limerick Hunt Museum. All are welcome 
to attend on Wednesday at half past seven. Admission five euro for members and seven if you're a non-member. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. Email Patricia now with your story or comment. Cork today at c103.ie. Today on C103. And some of your comments coming in. Hi, Patricia. For the sake of saying it, the UK granted asylum to Rwandan refugees, even though they argued that Rwanda was a safe country. A safe country doesn't mean it's safe for everyone. Yeah, and that's the reason why in this country we now have a list of safe countries with the two extra, uh, Algeria and Botswana, going to be added onto it. But that does mean that when somebody comes and claims that they want international protection, their case has to be heard. And that's why and that's where the minister is saying they're going to do that within 90 days. Dennis says, Patricia, a friend of mine recently returned to Dublin, just been on a short trip abroad, couldn't find their passport when they arrived back in Dublin, having mislaid it. They were kept for nearly four hours in a room waiting to be let go home. A huge difference from those having no paperwork while being trafficked. A man said on the news lately from Egypt that he paid €10,000 to come here. Yeah, they pay huge, huge uh, sums of money. But of course, the difference there is the person without the passport isn't claiming international protection. The others are claiming international protection and therefore have to be dealt with uh, differently. And also in on Holly Kearns, Carol says, have other female politicians had the same problems that Holly has been identifying? Or what about female staff who work in politicians' office? Well, I know um, last year when Holly went public, there was other TDs came out as well. So yes, she's not the only female uh, politician. I think because she's the only female politician, she's the only fem- female TD in Cork City and County. I think it's the reason why, why we uh, focus on, on Holly. But yes, other politicians unfortunately have got that kind of abuse as well. And Derek reckons people have just gone more aggressive. He's noticed even if people go into a normal shop, a simple issue of not having something in stock that a person wants. He says, and you can see people getting really, really angry at the store worker. I can only imagine what it is like for politicians. We seem to be getting more aggressive as a nation and I don't know what that is all about. 0818103103. I'm just looking to see where um, this piece is that's coming up next. John Paul, sorry, I'm looking for uh, the, oh, I have it. Sorry, I'm looking for the piece from St. Angela's. I've just spotted it. Thank you. OK, St. Angela's College in Cork City, their young social innovator group are doing their bit to promote healthy eating and a positive body uh, image. They've been looking at the different aspects of nutrition among young girls and they sur- surveyed 90 students about their lunch habits. And out of that, they're making a cookbook with healthy and simple recipes. We got to hear about it. So we decided to send our reporter, Marie Tuig. We sent her along to St. Angela's. College in Cork City to hear more about this mission for nutrition. A mission for nutrition is underway at St. Angela's College. It's a project by a group of transition year students who are taking part in YSI. They're doing their bit to promote healthy eating and a positive body image. Leah says awareness is vital. Healthy eating in general just can improve your whole like way of life, especially for us girls, because a body image around like 
um, social media on Instagram there's that idea of like the ideal body and just kind of tackling that um, in a small way but definitely making a big difference was just something that was important for us. A school survey answered by 90 students at St Angela's has revealed some interesting stats as Lucia has been telling us. We have a vending machine in our school um, and it is filled with kind of chocolates, crisps, stuff like that. Just stuff if you forget your lunch, quick and easy again, to just eat. Not very healthy, but we asked, our first question was, how often do you use the vending machine? And 49% of people said that they use it once a week. Um, and then twice a week was 11% of people. And then four times a week or every day was 1% of people. So a lot of people use the vending machine, but it's not very healthy. And they, they use it more instead of bringing their own packed lunch, which we also asked. So for, we asked how many people bring their lunch to school, um, and that was 40% of people said sometimes, and 13% of people said no that they never bring their lunch to school. So you're going to be opting for um, the vending machine stuff, which is not very healthy. And then uh, 46% of people said they always bring their lunch. The project team have been working on a podcast featuring their home ec teacher, guidance counsellor and a nutritionist. And the episode will be available on the school channel. Jamie says it's a great way to spread the word. And we were just kind of like informing like our school community more about nutrition from kind of a more professional point of view as uh, teachers and nutritionists. And even just being like in the room while the, teach- while the um, people were talking, like it was so informal. But like we had so much fun as well, like because we learned so much about it and things that like I never knew before. There's been a really positive reaction from the school community as the team interacts with other year groups. For younger years especially, we went, we're currently going into first, second and third years and we're informing them about nutrition and nutrition with teenagers. And we have um, this presentation that we show them and then we do a quiz. So we feel like that was also something that was a bit different to a normal class that afterwards they had a quiz so that like the information really sunk into them that they kind of like they knew that they kind of had to listen because they were getting like quizzed in like a fun way afterwards and like so far they they seem to really like it like um Yesterday we did one and they really did enjoy it and they were really involving in it. Being part of a project like this brings an appetite for change and Lucia says it increases awareness of positive habits. And for me that's something that I've been doing a lot, just controlling how much I eat and when I eat it because when you eat is very important as well. So skipping breakfast is like, that's really important to eat because you know you go into school kind of energised and so kind of like, drowsy and stuff in your first few classes. Shelley Whelan, YSI guide teacher at St Angela's, says the project is benefiting the whole community. Them being able to go out into other classes, they're teaching the younger students about it, the conference is going to teach our older students and other students from other schools about it, but also we are working as well then with our guidance counsellor and with doctors, so it's bringing a really holistic approach Um, And the entire community is going to benefit from that, not just 
the girls in the YSI class, but it's about the whole school benefiting from that. The group working on the project are creating a cookbook filled with simple and healthy recipes and Leah hopes it's something students will always have. Because I know many people in college like are very busy and like opt for easy ready me- ready-made meals, but just taking that time to have in your back pocket a few recipes that won't take that long but will have beneficial impacts on you as a person. Well done. Thank you, Mairead, for that. They're wonderful young girls at St. Anthony's College in Cork City and great to hear them, you know, promoting that healthy eating, but also the, the body positivity is so important with that uh, age group. Okay, just quick Quickly, some final comments in on Holly Kearns and Holly, Social Democrats leader, making the decision to close her Bandon constituency office. Uh, John O'Donovan in the city says at the end of the day, the people of Bandon are losing out because they've lost a constituency office that he says is paid for out of taxpayers' money. He said as long as people show up outside a constituency office of an elected TD and protest, they're entitled to stand there with a placard and protest as long as they do no harm to the building or the people inside. If there was a threat to her, what are the guards? Are they doing to sort it out? Well, I think this is more than people protesting outside the constituency office, uh, John. This was actually down to a stalker turning up at uh, at her home and she didn't in any way uh, say it was anything to do with people uh, protesting. Eileen and Carrie Galine said, looking at the recent happenings just in the UK with Holly Willoughby and the threat to her life, she understands how some women, particularly women in public eye, uh, would be very worried and very fearful. So she fully understands why Holly has decided to close the constituency office. Billy and Clonic Hilty says new laws were passed for stalking. She is the face of women in politics in West Cork. Why is Holly walking away from this? Would she not turn up and send out a message to these people intimidating her? What's happening now? She's not standing up to those people and surely it's sending out the wrong message to victims. If it is that severe, what are the Gardaí doing? Is it the Gardaí are now saying she that they were unable to protect their citizens in Bandon? No, I don't think that is it. I think the advice that was given, the Gardaí, it wasn't just Holly's office. The Gardaí carried out free security assessments for any TDs that want that uh, wanted it. Now I know some of the recommendations included things like having a locked front door for example and putting a buzzer and the only way you could open the front door was that staff would be able to see the person outside on some kind of, you know, a telecom, a video telecom, and then they'd open the door. You know, they also suggested that uh, TDs in constituency offices needed to put panic alarms below their desks. Now, some TDs are fearful that if you put in very strict security me- measures, that it would be barriers to inter- interacting with the public. And they don't like the idea of people having to buzz on a door to get in. But I'm wondering in the main, is that male TDs? who don't feel as intimidated as female TDs do, particularly I think if a stalker turned up at my home, I think I would be taking that threat very, very seriously indeed. 0818 103 103. Our lines are open. John Paul's taking your calls. Text or WhatsApp 0862 103 103. Let's take a break. Joe Heffernan joins us next. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. For motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie And Joe Heffernan joining us. Good afternoon to you, Joe. Good afternoon, Patricia. Great as always to chat to you now. We started this last week where we spoke about assertiveness and we spoke about the different types of assertiveness and how assertiveness is uh, neither aggressive nor uh, passive. Uh, because, and it's funny, I was thinking about that we were going to be picking up on this again today when one of the comments that came in earlier where somebody has noticed that in society, some people, there seems to be a lot more aggression out there. And, you know, he was citing the example of you can be in a shop and if... You 
something isn't available to somebody, the shopper can get very aggressive with the yeah. with the yeah. with you know the person, and it might be a young person working in in a shop, and and that aggression is is not somebody standing up for themselves and being assertive. That's just aggressive behaviour, isn't oh, absolutely. it? Absolutely, yeah, 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 and there's no there's no place for that. And they're two very different things. So we're trying to get people to be, to be aggressive, to express themselves. To be assertive. To be assertive, sorry, without being aggressive. Yeah. Or, or the flip of it is without being passive. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. So we have this uh, assertiveness test. Okay. Now, it's not written in stone, you know, but um, when a person would have... Um, uh, uh, partaken in it, um, uh, there might be a few things that a person might think about and say, do you know what, I, I, I'd want to change that a bit. And that would be great. But, I mean, it's not a judgment, you know. Yeah. Um, no, the thing is that um, there are 11 questions, and all a person has to do, either mentally or on a bit of paper or whatever you like, if, if one of the statements, um, if, if you would say, yeah, that's me, well, then you count that as one. So you're counting uh, the yeses. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Okay, off you go so, then. There's 11 okay. questions. Well, number one is, I say yes too quickly and then regret that I, haven't, that I have taken on something I don't really want to do. So I say yes too quickly. Okay. Um, yeah, I'd be, I'd be taking that one mm, a bit. So would yeah. I. So would I. Okay. No, two. Having said yes, I find it extremely difficult to contact the person to tell the person that I have now reconsidered, changed my mind, and cannot now comply with the request. So, having said yes, I find it very difficult to take back my yes and to say, you know, actually, I can't do that. Yeah, and then that, so le- that's that, yeah, and that leaves you then fuming, going, I have to do this, and I don't want to do this, I have to do this, and I want to do this, and so, yeah, yeah, it's a head wreck. Okay, so number three then? Three is, I find it very difficult to tell friends or family members and friends that they've done something that upsets me or offends me. Um, you know, if something has been said or done that has upset me or offends me, I kind of soak it up in a way and I don't uh, say it to my family member or friends, uh, that upset me. Okay, that's number three. Number four, I find it hard to tell survey requests, call calls, like on the phone, that I'm too busy right now and hang up if they are very pushy. Well, I recently had a call now from, uh, this is such a company and a survey, and I did say, um, look, it's a very bad time for me, I'm, I'm, I'm running. So, yeah, I, I wouldn't well be done. saying yes yeah, you, were, you were able to do it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and you'll get a lot well, of the cold callers coming to the door as well. And, and you know, you, I think this is where you've got, you've got to try and get the balance. You don't want to engage because you don't want the product or whatever that they're, they're selling, but you don't want to be rude as well. So it's, it's trying to work out a way of getting them from your door or getting them off the phone, but you don't want to sound rude about it. Absolutely. And maybe, you know, <coughs> I wouldn't hesitate to, to say something like, look, it's a bad time for me. I'm up the wall, yeah, busy yeah. at the moment, but um, thanks for calling. Yeah. You know. Yeah. You, you, can do it, you can do it without being aggressive. You can, of course. Okay. And that's the whole idea of assertiveness. 
Now, the next one is interesting. I find it difficult to tell salespersons in the shop that I'm just browsing. Uh, one of the things that actually annoys me a bit, because I don't know how to answer it, is a person in the shop comes up to me and says, are you okay? Um, I, I mean, I usually take it literally and, say, and I say something like, I hope they don't think I'm being smart. I'd say, well, I will be. No, no, that um, I, I can ask for uh, whatever. Um, yeah. But I, I just find that one difficult. Are you okay? Whereas, I mean, can I help you? Would be, <laughs> I yeah. find better. Anyway, um, uh, the question is, am I saying yes to this? I find it difficult to tell salespersons in the shop that I'm just browsing. And that's all you have to say. Yes, I'm fine. I'm just browsing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Number six. I find it difficult to voice my opinion when a group is discussing an issue, even when I think my opinion is valid. So I tend to kind of like um, keep my voice to myself in a group instead of putting forward my opinion um, when I think that my opinion, when, when I think that I have a point. Okay, so I stay silent. Would I be ticking that one? Seven. I often don't ask for clarification when I am confused about what someone has said in case it makes me seem stupid. Yeah, and I think that's the key. We're all afraid of looking stupid. It's the yeah. same with you with the previous one. You don't want to speak in public for fear, God, will people not get the point I'm making? But that's where you have to be assertive about it. You have a right to what you believe in and you have a right to ask for clarification. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I find it great to ask for clarification. You know, something quite simple like, Hi, you know what, um, would you say that again? I didn't quite get it. Mm. And I don't think that makes us seem stupid. No. I don't really no. believe no. it does. No. Now, number eight, I do not accept criticism well. I often get resentful or overreact to others who find fault in what I have done or said. So I don't accept criticism, um, uh, you know. That's now if it's criticism um, offered in a in a helpful way. We're all probably a little bit guilty of that. No, nobody likes to be criticised. No. So I suppose we're all a little bit guilty of that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I'd be I'd be putting a half a tick anyway. Yeah, on that one. yeah, yeah. No nine. <laughs> Excuse me. I have difficulty accepting compliments and sometimes downplay my accomplishments, appearances or abilities. Ah, God, that's, that's, a, that's an Irish thing. It is. It's like when somebody says to, to a female, God, I love your dress, the famous line, this thing, pennies, girl. You know, or right. this, this old thing, we're really bad at that. I, I, think that's, yeah. I really think that's an Irish thing. Yeah, yeah. And I found in recent years now, if someone pays me a compliment, um, I, I just say thank you. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that covers it um, uh, without saying, you yeah, know, um, that whole course, yeah, I have that 24 years, you know. Yeah, you don't yeah. have to explain. Somebody just likes what you're wearing or, or likes something yeah. you've done or said. Just accept the compliment and move on. Absolutely. Number 10 of 11, 10. I find it difficult to ask a favour of another. 
Um, yeah, um, I, I don't really get that one because, um, I, you know, if if I need a favour of another person, um, I, I ask them. Yeah, I, I yeah. don't think it makes. Because, uh, because likewise, I would feel I would be available if I was asking somebody for a favour. It's obviously somebody sure. I, I know very well. So my, my thought pattern would be, well, if they were asking me to do this and I was free, of course I would do it for them. So yeah, that, that provided would be, it isn't something outlandish. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I find it difficult to ask a favour of another. Would we be ticking that one? And then number 11, the last one. I am very reluctant to complain about or return an improperly prepared meal, for example, in a restaurant or a defective item purchased in a store. Now, um, now whatever about the defective item purchased in the store, the, the returning the meal is something a lot of us, again, are guilty of. I, I, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to even think, have I ever done it? I've complained about a meal in my head. I've complained afterwards to somebody, but I don't know if I've ever actually said, can you take that back, please? It's <laughs> yeah. And we should. We, like, we absolutely should. Yeah, yeah. I and we're not doing any, we're not doing, uh, sorry, we're not doing any favours to the restaurant by going away and slagging them off instead of giving them the opportunity no, to fix yeah. it. Yeah, prefer that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um... I, I I have I've 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 sent back a few meals in my time. Have you? <laughs> I have. I have. Um, I remember on a ferry over to Scotland, uh, a, a, a friend of mine who is now dead, um, Jerry. Um, I I sent back two steaks, not one, Ooh. two. But like they were they were definitely out of order. The steaks were, and um, he <laughs> he. He said, if I send back a third one, he's leaving. (laughs) (laughs) And was the third one okay? The third one was perfect. Yeah. (laughs) God, they they didn't want to see you coming back. I remember actually being at Dublin Airport, having, you know, a quick cup of coffee before we boarded and we ended up chatting to this other couple from Cork and we both discovered we'd both travelled up separately the evening before and it both stayed in the same hotel, one of these mm. hotels where you can park your car up and, and, and take off the next day. And I happened to mention I was vegetarian and this other woman was vegetarian and we'd both gone for the same meal and both of us said, God, it was disgusting, wasn't it? And both agreed. And I said, did you return? And she said, no, did you? And I said, no, I didn't. But I couldn't <laughs> believe the two of us had sat in the same restaurant complaining about this meal and none of us returned it. Anyway, okay. So okay. I, I think I've come in with about a four. So I'm, it's, it, it's sort of zero to three three, four to six or seven to uh, ten. So we're okay. quickly, so quickly go down through if people got Not the low score, the low scores. A score of zero indicates general comfort in expressing your preferences and opinions as well as a generally high confidence level. If you checked a few items on the list, you may have difficulty asserting yourself in some specific circumstances and not in others. Now that's not to three. Four to six. Scores in this range may indicate a general discomfort in requesting what you want, difficulty refusing what you don't want, and hesitation in expressing your feelings. So if we score four, five, or six, we need to have a think about the ones that we ticked and say anything I could change there. Now, seven to ten, that's pretty high. Your responses have indicated that you may have a great deal of difficulty asserting yourself in a wide variety of situations. Assertiveness is not just a matter of getting what you want. It's communicating effectively and learning not to give in when you don't want to. 
In other words, that we'd stop saying yes when we actually want to say no to whatever. Yeah. Okay. So three categories, not the okay. three. Well done. Well, well done. I can see I can see a number of uh, people. Somebody only got two uh, yeses. Sheila, well done. And she's, But she says, I do remember I put a smelly steak in my handbag rather than send it back. Oh, dear Lord, Sheila. Right. And someone else says, if you return your meals to the kitchen, awful things can be done to your food when they return it. And I suppose oh. that's the danger. OK, we've got to leave it there. Have a great oh. week and we'll talk to you next week, Joe. Enjoy the bank holiday. Indeed, and the same, Patricia. Take care. Bye-bye. Joe Heffernan runs a counselling practice in Bohabui. His number is 086-834-8145. That's where I leave you for today. Thanks to John Paul McNamara for producing. Nick Richards with you for the afternoon. We'll talk to you tomorrow at 10. And to the night, Patricia Messenger. Very good afternoon. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Want great advice? You know who to talk to. CMIG.ie.